Let's open up to Revelation 15. Revelation 15, including tonight, eight more studies. And we will finish the book of Revelation. I think it will have been about uh, 50 or something that we've done, yeah. So uh, I'm excited to conclude and and be finished, but I also kind of get to this point, especially in teaching Revelation, I get to this point in the study where I get a little melancholy because I don't want to stop. I just want to keep going. The last time I taught it, and this time both, I kind of thought, boy, it'd be great if if we could take long enough teaching through this that we didn't finish, that Jesus comes before we get to the end, and then we can just live the ending. So, maybe we will. Maybe we will. Well, let's uh, take a moment, pray together, and prepare our hearts for this, this word tonight. Lord Jesus, we honor you as our God and our King. And we thank you so much for the way that you work in this world and the way, Lord, that you work through us and the things that you teach us and show us. We thank you, precious Lord, for your word. And Father, that you chose in these days and in these times to speak to us through Jesus and to reveal yourself to us through him. And Lord Jesus, we just thank you for for the amazing love you have For each of us, we bow before and humble ourselves before your power, your greatness, your authority. And especially, Father, I just want to thank you for your patience. We need your patience. Each and every one of us, Father. And especially this world in which we live. Your long-suffering, your perseverance over time, Lord. The way you keep coming back at us with your grace. The fact that you've allowed time to roll on as long as you have is testimony, Father, to your incredible patience. We know, Lord, that at some point that patience will run out. We know that even the things we study tonight point to this coming and final day. But Lord, until then, we pray that you will keep our mouths open and, and speaking the name of Jesus. For there are so many, Father, who even today you are being incredibly patient with, who as of yet still reject you, still rebel against you, or, or choose not even to acknowledge you. And Lord, we just pray for them. We pray hearts will be changed and open. That as we speak the name of Jesus, and as we share your word, as we, like we spoke last week, as we sow and we plant the seeds of the word, that hearts will be changed. We know we don't have the power to do this, but we know that your spirit does have the power to convict the world of sin. And we pray that this would happen. And we seek that day when you come. And we just ask that you be with us tonight. Bless the study of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Revelation 15, verse 1. says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last. Because in them the wrath of God is finished. Revelation 15 is the shortest chapter. The shortest chapter in the entire book of Revelation. But don't let that fool you. It has great significance for a couple of reasons. Number one, chapter 15 will now finish the parenthetical midsection of Revelation. Let me explain what that means. Some of you, if you've been studying through, you know what I'm talking about. But you get into the middle of the book of Revelation, and we've talked about how there is a chronological, literal flow to the book. You start in chapter 1, verse 1, and you begin to make your way through the book, and it just flows very literally and very chronologically all the way till you get to chapter 10. Suddenly in chapter 10, 
John begins to say, I saw a sign. Or, or there was this symbol. And he begins to speak in, in signs. And he begins to pull back a little bit and give us some broader overviews. And so what we've done is, so far, we've called this section from literally, literally Revelation 10 to Revelation 15, about halfway through the chapter, as you'll see tonight, is the parenthetical section. It's that section that if you were going to draw parentheses in the chronological flow of the book, you'd do it beginning at chapter 10 and finish at chapter 15. Why? Because he's talking about, again, overviews. He covers some different things. Now after tonight, we'll be back on track, following an impending juggernaut down to the final days before Jesus' glorious appearing. After his glorious appearing, we're going to see Satan bound with the inauguration of the thousand-year millennial kingdom that will be followed by final judgment. Followed then by the destruction of the world completely and the bara, the bara, that is the creation, the Hebrew word for creation, creating something from nothing. God will create a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, not out of the old. It's not going to be a restructuring or a restoring of the earth. It's going to be a completely new thing, and we're going to live with him then for all eternity. But tonight, we're finishing this great parenthesis, Revelation 10, 1 through 15, 4, in your notes. That's the parenthesis in the book. Let me explain this a little more specifically. What we've seen over the last several weeks, chapter 10 shows us a sign of a little book. An angel takes a little book, you may remember this, and gives it to John and says, eat it. And he says it tasted sweet in his mouth, but it was bitter in his stomach. A book that's both sweet and sour. Sweet to the taste, but bitter to the stomach. It speaks of the word of God. And I fully believe, and we studied this weeks ago, that that little book is a portent to John in his day of the Bible of the gospel in written form that we actually have in our hands. At the time John wrote the Revelation, letters were circulating, and there were the Old Testament scriptures, but there wasn't the Bible put together exactly as we know it. And so Jesus gives John insight to this little book that's both sweet and sour. Chapter 11 introduces us to the two witnesses who preach through the entire first half of the tribulation. They're talked about just in one chapter. But it's an overview of three and a half years talked about in that one chapter, chapter 11. Chapter 12 is that wide view of Israel and the plan of God. Literally from the beginning of Israel, beginning of Israel as a nation to the end of Israel and, and to the end that God has planned for them and the future. Chapter 12 covers the whole gamut of that in one chapter. Chapter 13 gave us a terrifying picture of the beastly trio. The false prophet, the dragon, the antichrist, and how that trio will function together in the entire last half of the tribulation, three and a half years. Then we come to chapter 14, and like a breath of fresh air, chapter 14 indicates the return of the king. We've just been reading in chapter 13, it's, it's, it's brutal, it's frightening, it's a little overwhelming, and it's almost as if John stops and then gives to the readers, or Jesus gives to John in the moment of, the, of terror, says, now wait a minute, it does look bad. Antichrist is coming. The dragon is going to empower him. The false prophet is going to be on the stage. It's all going to be very, very bad. However, after that, the king's coming. The king is going to return. He's going to stand on Mount Zion in his glory at the end of the tribulation period. That's chapter 14. And now, in the first four verses of chapter 15, we get prepared for one more sign before we get back into the flow of the tribulation period. So, chapter 15, number one, it finishes the parenthetical midsection of, of the Re book of Revelation. Chapter 15 now speaks of fullness. Fullness. If you had one word for the chapter, that would be the word. Look again at verse 1. He says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. 
seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. The word finished, it should be a familiar word to you if you've been studying the scripture for a while, it's the word teleo. Same word that Jesus cried out in John 19.30 when he was on the cross. At the end of that six hours of hanging on the cross and completing what God called him to do, he cried out, Teleo! Which means it is finished. Why? Because at that point in history, actually twice in history, the wrath of God swells to Teleo, to completeness to fullness and is satisfied. When Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied in that death. Which is why now you and I, even 2,000 years later, can put our faith in Jesus Christ and because of the faith in Jesus and His death on the cross, the wrath of God toward our personal lives is already satisfied. Judgment paid for. Teleo. It is finished. It is complete. It is filled up. That was the first time in history at that place called Calvary. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. says, Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So the first time in history that the wrath of God came to fullness was when it was dumped out 100% on Jesus at Calvary. We've talked many times about this contrast. We have a choice. We can accept the cross and have our judgment day happen right there, or we can face the literal judgment day. And that's the second time in history where God's wrath is full. It's in the tribulation. And the perfect picture of this is in the seven bowls that will be handed to seven angels to be poured out. And we're going to see that in chapter 16. Romans chapter 2 verse 5. Paul writes, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You're storing up, Paul says, storing up wrath. How exactly does that work? It does compile. Kind of like interest-bearing accounts, wrath compiles with interest over time. I don't know if you've seen this, but one of my favorite treatments of the uh, story of Christmas Carol is called Scrooge. It's an older one. Um, I forget the name of the actor, but it's a musical. It's an English musical. If you've seen it, it's just wonderful. But there's a, a point at the end where Scrooge, in, in this adaptation, actually dies, or he thinks he dies, falls into a grave, and he, all the, he ends up all the way down in hell. And Jacob Marley, his, his one-time business partner who had died seven years before, is down there in hell with him, and Jacob's carrying this big ponderous chain around his neck, but when Scrooge gets down there, he says, the chain that you have is so big they had, to, they had to assign extra demons at the quarry just to finish building it for you. And they have this scene where they're walking along with this chain and they've got like ten demons lined up and they're carrying this massive heavy chain and they come in and they just begin to wrap it around and around and around Scrooge. And it's awful. It's a terrifying moment at the end of this movie. But that's kind of what we're talking about here. The wrath of God being stored up, as Paul says, storing it up. The more I rebel, the more people go against the Lord. The more rejection, the more the wrath is being stored up. And the Bible tells us there will come a point when it is full, when it is teleo, when it is complete, when it is up to overflowing. And at that point, God says, enough is enough. I don't know about you, but when I open up the daily news or watch the news on TV, there are many times where I just have to close the paper or turn off the TV because I say, enough is enough. Just had it. 
Just get tired and, and, and weary of all the sin and the murder and the, and the brutality in the world. And the stupidity in Washington. No offense, I couldn't be a politician. I couldn't do what those guys do. But on the world stage, the arrogance and the ridiculousness of things. And you just say, man, enough is enough. And that's what God prepares us for in chapter 15. That time when the wrath of God is to leo is finished. Now, before we go any further, I want you to organize, organizationally think about this for a moment. It's important to understand in the study that by the time we finish chapter 16, we will have gone through three sets of seven judgments. The judgments in Revelation are broken up into three different sets of seven judgments each. Here, are, here they are, just for your awareness, your understanding. The first are the seven seal judgments in Revelation 6. That's the first set. Seven seal judgments. These are seals on earth's title deed of sin running its ultimate course, resulting in the martyrdom of God's people and the wrath of the Lamb. That's what the seal judgments are. Now, now God is involved. It is called the wrath of the Lamb, but it's wrath that is basically sin running its course. Sin allowed to do what sin does, and it results in death and famine and disease and war. It results in people following after Antichrist. God steps back and says, you want sin? I'm going to let your sin play out. And as the Bible tells us in the book of Numbers, be sure your sin will find you out. So the seven seal judgments, that's the first set of seven judgments. The second set comes in Revelation 8 and then finishes in Revelation chapter 11. And it's the seven trumpet judgments. Seven seal judgments, then seven trumpet judgments, which are an even more direct judgment of God. Now he, he is entering in even more so. He's, his hand is a little heavier in these judgments. But as we studied through those, you may recall that some say that it resembles a nuclear holocaust, followed by a nuclear winter. In fact, the description of the trumpet judgments is very close to that. A nuclear holocaust, a worldwide nuclear holocaust of massive proportions. And you may ask the question at this point, how does this jive with God as a judge? How does this all work out? Parents, you may uh, ask yourselves the question, when was the last time I gave my kids just enough rope to hang themselves with? As a father myself, there are times I will do that. There are times where I know one of my kids is heading down the wrong road, but I'm going to let them go just a little bit further because I know all they need is two or three more steps and they're going to bring about their own failure. They're going to experience their own pain. And their own pain in the situation is more important for them to learn than if I stopped them short and, and rescued them from it. One of the hardest things about parenting, actually one of the hardest things about loving anybody, is to allow them to work out their own sin. It's to, to allow them to walk down a road without rescuing them so that they feel the ramifications of that. That's what I believe is going on in the trumpet judgments. Again, God is allowing more of mankind's stupidity and failure and sin to play itself out. It's learning by experience. And if the trumpet judgments do in fact describe a worldwide nuclear holocaust, if nuclear warheads are the agency by which God pulls off these trumpet judgments, then it's our just deserts. It's what the world has deserved for itself. And it's still, even at that point, it's still God attempting to get his hands on a Christ-rejecting world. Let it play out. Let them see how bad their choices are. And then, maybe even then, some will come to me in faith and repentance. So you have the seven seal judgments. You have the seven trumpet judgments. And in the third set of judgments, now it's in Revelation 16, we'll get to next week, the seven bold judgments, or vile judgments, or bottled judgments, they're all kind of the same word, bowls, vials, bottles, it's all a, a similar thing, it's almost a medical picture. 
of vials that are filled up with the wrath of God. And again, we'll get to that next week. But these are the most direct and brutal of all the judgments of God. In fact, in the case of the seven bold judgments, every single one of them comes directly from the hands of the Father, comes directly from the heavens, and is not done in any way, shape, or form by human agency. This is God saying, enough is enough, I'm done with this. We talked about that, uh, I think that once you get past that midpoint of the tribulation period, once you get to that point where people can either accept the mark of the beast or reject it, that from that point forward, people will no longer repent. From that point, point forward, those who do become faithful, who do find faith in Jesus, even during the tribulation period, even during that time, will be martyred, and all that will be left is the rejection of Christ on planet Earth. So we have these three sets of seven judgments that fill up the seven-year tribulation period. Okay, it's actually very simple. As you go through Revelation 6 through 19 in the tribulation, Three sets of judgments, seven judgments in each one. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. You get that down, you have a picture, an overview of the tribulation. Now, remember, the number seven in scripture doesn't mean perfection. It, it means completeness or fullness or literally filling up. Completely filling up. Looking again at verse 1, it ends with that last line. In them, that is these bowl judgments to come, the wrath of God is finished. Now, I want to camp out here on this idea a little bit longer tonight before we go on through the chapter. For in this opening verse, what John's doing is he's giving us perspective as to why the next series of, of judgments, these bold judgments, are so necessary. Muslim nations have, with I believe a lot of help from our Western media, come up with an effective propaganda tool. It's actually, it actually has a word for it. The word is turnspeak. You ever heard of turnspeak? heard that phrase before? It describes what Muslim nations have done, especially over the last several decades, with regards to Israel. Let me read to you about this. This is from Hal Lindsey's book, Everlasting Hatred, The Roots of Jihad, which I'm going to suggest a couple of different books tonight. That one is one that you should have. If you're interested in studying through these things in the scriptures, an excellent, excellent book. Everlasting Hatred, The Roots of Jihad by Hal Lindsey. He says, I quote, a modern media have invented a perfect term for what Muslim nations have done with the Jews. Turn speak. It means, quote, a cynical inverting or distorting of facts, which makes the victim appear to be the oppressor. And isn't that exactly what we see in Israel? The victims, the oppressor, they're the ones causing the problem. It's Israel's fault. All of the ills of the Middle East are Israel's fault. Point the, the, the angle on them. He says, Arab propagandists have used turnspeak perfectly in perpetuating the myth of displaced and terrorized Arabs in the Jewish settled area of Palestine become Israel. The record shows, listen to this, the record shows the migrant Muslims came from other Arab lands to areas of what was then Palestine back in the 1800s and, or late 1800s, early 1900s. These areas that were reclaimed and developed by Jews in order to get jobs. They weren't there. They had given up so much of this land. Late 1800s, when the Jews began to go back into Palestine, what was called Palestine at the time, they began to migrate in there, and a lot of Jewish businessmen just began buying up land. And the Muslims were happy to sell it to them because the land was trashed. It was in terrible shape. It was mosquito-infested, malaria-infested, boggy, deserty, messy land. It, it, there was no use for it. It had become literally a wasteland over the centuries. So the Muslims were saying, you want the land? Great. The Arabs were selling it off. The Jews were buying it. But the Jews began to work the land. 
And amazingly, and even the Bible describes this, miraculously the land has begun to bear fruit again. It it became profitable. And so migrant Arabs began saying, I need work. I can go over there to that land, Palestine at the time. I can get work there. And so migrant Arabs began to come back. But as they came back, they started to claim, it says it was afterward, that they began to claim Jews had displaced them from the land that had been in their families for time immemorial. And that's the second book you ought to have on your shelf. A great reference book, Time Immemorial, by a woman named Joan Peters. I've mentioned her before. She did a a massive study back in the late 70s, early 80s, I believe it was where she ended up writing this book. She went in to check out the Palestinian refugee crisis. She had a heart for the Palestinian refugees, and so she went to do a full-page expose on what happened, what the Jews had done to the poor Palestinians. By the time she was done with her study, she came to the conclusion that it was exactly the opposite. That the Palestinian refugee crisis was the fault not of the Jews, but of the Arabs who would not let their brothers come back into Jordan or Syria, or Saudi Arabia, or even Egypt or Lebanon. Joan Peters. Joan Peters' book, From Time Immemorial. Now, regarding the hatred and brutality and lies of Arab Muslims toward and about Israel, the Bible makes a clear point. And I'd like you to keep a finger in Revelation 15 and turn to Ezekiel 35. Ezekiel 35. Now, I have said before, and I clarify again, that I'm not interested in bashing bashing a Muslim just because they're a Muslim. I'm not anti-Arab. In fact, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are Arabic. There are Arab Christians. There are Palestinian Christians. But what does concern me is though I'm not anti-the Muslim, I can honestly say I am anti-Islam because it is a religion of deceit and lies that comes directly from the evil one. And we see even in scripture what God promises is going to happen to those especially who are attempting to put down his people Israel. Follow along Ezekiel 35 verse 1. Moreover the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir. And I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay waste to your cities and you will become a desolation. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of the punishment of the end. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed. And bloodshed will pursue you. Since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it the one who passes through and returns. I will fill its mountains with its slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those slain by the sword will fall. I will make you an everlasting desolation, and your cities will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord." Because you have said, listen to this, because you have said these two nations and these two lands will be mine and we will possess them although the Lord was there. Therefore as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy which you showed because of your hatred against them. So I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Look back at verse 10. 
because you said these two nations and these two lands will be mine what are we talking about there I think personal opinion we're talking about Israel and Palestine I think we're talking about two people groups that are living side by side and for the Palestinians in fact just today just today about two hours ago Hamas rejected um, Mahmoud Abbas's uh, call to them to recognize Israel as a nation. Abbas, who is the president of the Palestinian people, has a plan where he is at least trying to recognize Israel, which would be unbelievable. But Hamas, in their charter, are saying there's no way we will ever recognize Israel. And so the Palestinian people in and of themselves are absolutely torn. Mahmoud Abbas is of the Fatah movement. And then you've got Hamas. And so Fatah and Hamas are battling out like crazy. In fact, in the Gaza Strip just this last week, there was incredible bloodshed as they are fighting each other over this issue of whether or not to recognize Israel as a nation. The Hamas, which the Palestinian people elected into power in the government, Hamas is saying we will never recognize Israel. As a matter of fact, the plan is to get as much land as possible and to continue getting land until finally Israel is driven into the sea. And I read verse 10 and I hear these two nations. Because you have said these two nations and these two lands will be mine. We will possess them even though the Lord was there. Therefore the Lord says, I will deal with you according to your anger. And according to your envy which you have showed because of your hatred against him. Down in verse 12 he says going on. Then you will know that I the Lord have heard all your revilings which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel. Saying they are laid desolate. They are given to us for food. And you have spoken arrogantly against me and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard it. Thus says the Lord God, as all the earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will do to you. Listen to this. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Edom, the land of the Edomites. The Arabic descendants of Esau who settled in the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, those lands even today, and on into the Middle East. And Mount Seir refers to the entire neighboring region that surrounds Israel. Look at a map and you can see it. Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, these, these nations that surround Israel are Mount Seir. So we have a prophetic judgment against this very people group. Why is that? Because this very people group has set themselves against God and he is getting tired of it. And the wrath is filling up. And there is a day coming when God will say, enough is enough. There is a day coming when God will say, I've had enough of Muslim turn speak and I will turn and speak against them. By the way, in America we have a phrase that I believe is more than run its course. It's not turn speak, it's free speech. And I get tired of hearing the way free speech is, is tossed around in our culture. This right, this right in our culture really is our own cultural turn speech. Free speech is a twisting of the intentions of our forefathers. Man, when they said freedom of speech, this is not what they were talking about. As, as a matter of fact, if you read the entirety of, of American history, what you'll discover is this particular American right had to do with exactly what it sounds like. Freedom to express your views in a speech. That's what freedom of speech means. Freedom to stand up and express your views in the form of a speech. And yet our airwaves and our media and our movies and our music and our very culture is full of it. And it's serious because God's wrath is filling up. So what does it take to fill up the bowls of God's wrath? Look at Genesis 
verse, chapter 15. Flip back over there. Genesis 15. Just realizing, just going back over these notes today, we've gone to Genesis 15 several times in our study through Revelation. It is such a critical chapter in the understanding of things in the Bible. Look at it one more time. Genesis chapter 15, beginning along about verse 12. This is where God makes a covenant with Abraham. I begin with verse 12 because you need to understand that the covenant was complete and one-sided. Abraham had very little, if not, he had nothing to do with it. When a covenant was made, if you've studied this before, you know that what happens is, is an animal would be divided in half, the halves laid opposite each other, and the two people going into the covenant, entering the covenant together, would walk through the halves. And that's it's saying, see this barbecue, this is going to be you if you don't keep your end of the bargain. But we're told in chapter 12... Abraham, or chapter 15, verse 12, Abraham has already cut these, these two these animals, this heifer and goat and, and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. He's already cut them, laid the halves opposite each other. And it tells us in verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve. And afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. And you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they'll return here. Where's here? The promised land. That's where Abraham was at the time this happened. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun set that there, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a, appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Cabanite, and, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Megabite, and the Gigabite, and all down the line there. You've got here, now, from the great river Egypt, in verse 18, to the great river Euphrates, this land given to Abraham, we've talked about this before, 300,000 square miles, and Israel has only ever held, under Solomon, 30,000 square miles, just 10% of what was promised that they would have. And they will have it. They will have it all. But verse 16 is the verse that's interesting. Because if you look at that, it says in the fourth generation, they'll return here. That, that is after they spent 400 years in Egypt. And we know that story. But they're going to return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And there's that word again, complete. It's the word full. Revelation 15, verse 1 says the wrath of God is going to be fulfilled or full, full up. Same word. It's the Hebrew version of the Greek word here, the word complete or full. And it explains to us in this one verse that Israel's call to military campaigns and a seemingly ruthless slaughter of the Amorites and Hittites and the Jebusites and all the other ites, all of that in the land of Canaan wasn't just ruthless slaughter. It was following 400 years of patience on the part of God. 400 years of God waiting and the wrath slowly filling up as the Amorites, among all the others, sinned heinously. You know the sin of the Amorites. You've heard of some of these things, wedging their babies into walls of new homes in order to incur the favor of the god Moloch. They would literally take live infants 
build them into the walls, and let them die there, believing that this would bring prosperity from the god Molech. And that was just one of many atrocities that was going on in the land for 400 years. And so as the children of Israel come into the land, and in our Sunday and Wednesday studies, we're going to be there very quickly. We're going to get to the book of Joshua and and into some of those campaigns. As they come into the land, they are fulfilling God's righteous judgment against the Amorites and the others because God's wrath gets full. It fills up. He has finally had it. And I think regarding the Amorites and wedging their children into the walls, what would our legal system do if we found out something like that today? How would you respond to someone doing something as awful as that? So after 400 years, which by the way is twice the age of America, God declares to Abram that the sin of the Amorites would be full up. And as John Corson says, the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. God is patient, but he does have a final day. God is long-suffering, but there is a time where he will say, enough is enough. By the way, you may recall the question of the tribulation martyrs back in Revelation 6. They didn't say, oh God, how could you do this? They cried out to God, how long must this go on? How long, Lord, must we wait for your wrath to be satisfied? Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, I'll read it to you. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is a very real sign, a very real occurrence that will happen in the future in days yet to come. At the beginning of that tribulation period, there will be those who have been martyred for the cause of Christ, who have lost their lives, brutalized by people who wouldn't accept Christ. And they cry out, How long? Are you going to wait to avenge me? How long are you going to wait to judge me? Or to judge those who have come against me? And it says that there was given to each of them a white robe. They were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. There is something we've got to learn about the patience of God. The patience of God is partially why we see the atrocities in the world that we see today. People say, why does God allow this? This is God of love and grace up there in the heavens. Why does he allow all these things to go on? Because he's patient. Because God sees beyond the light and momentary troubles. He sees beyond these specific incidences in our short human history. He sees the big picture of eternity. And for the Lord, if a soul can be saved for all eternity, even if it goes bad on planet Earth, it's worth saving that soul. And so he's patient. I understand just a little bit of this. I've discovered in ministry over the years that trying to be patient with people is a very difficult thing to do. And the reason I say that is not because, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm all that and, and people are not, you know, people I work with. But I found myself in a position many times, ministry-wise, where one person is hurt over here, someone else is hurt over here, and both of them are wondering why I'm not solving the problem for both of them. And what I'm trying to do is walk through it as patiently as possible. This person saying, why haven't you booted this person out of the church? And this person saying, how come you're not paying any attention to me? And I'm sitting there going, trying to be patient. (laughs) Trying to walk this through. And it's a very hard place to be. Boy, with human wisdom, it's almost impossible. But with godly wisdom, he is a patient God. He is long-suffering. He's waiting. 
But his patience will reach an end. And that's where we're at again in Revelation 15. Let's go back there and go on to verse 2. Revelation 15, 2. I saw something like... Now again, you watch to understand if something is allegorical or if it's literal. You look at how it's described. John has already said, I saw a sign in the heavens. So he's given a picture. And now he says, I saw something like. So again, he's trying to describe something he's seeing here to the best of his ability. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. This is a really cool verse. John sees something amazing happening now here in heaven. He's looking up into the heavens and he sees the sea of glass mixed with fire. We've seen the sea of glass before, haven't we? Do you recall this? Revelation chapter 4 verse 6. He says, before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. This perfect calm, glassy water before the throne. But now that same sea of glass is mixed with fire. Fire. Fire in the scriptures speak of God's righteous judgment. We saw the fire come down and waylay Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw how God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. How he called for a fiery altar on which sacrifices would be given. The fire in scripture speaking then of judgment. Later God would descend on Mount Sinai in great fire and smoke. And my friends, we do not want to be the cause of of God's anger flaring up. Hebrews 12.39 tells us our God is a consuming fire. And his anger now burns. So as John looks up and he sees this sea of glass, it's the same sea of glass, but now flecked all over the top of the sea, a mixture, you see fire reflecting off of that sea of glass. Why? God's anger is heating up. He is getting ready to pour out his wrath. He is angry. As Jesus was angry when he walked into the temple and he saw that they turned his father's house into a den of robbers. And you could say Jesus went ballistic, but it was godly righteous anger as he turned over the tables of the money changers, as he drove the people out, as he made a cord of whips and got the animals out of his father's house. Righteous, holy anger, but anger nonetheless. Don't mistake, the anger of God is a dangerous, frightening thing. And so now before the throne, this beautiful sea of glass now has fire mixed in it because God is heating up. He is angry. But look at what's happening on this sea of glass. It's so amazing. Those who have been victorious over the beast are standing on the sea. What do you mean? Well, unless I miss my understanding here, they're walking on water. They're standing on the sea. What are they doing there? What's going on here? Well, they're standing on the sea because they are victorious. Let me explain. They do not appear victorious on the earth. On the earth, these are people who are losing their heads right and left because they won't take the mark of the beast. On the earth, these were people who even back in Nero's day were being lighted up as human torches and made fun of. These are people who are being stoned because they proclaimed faith in this Jesus guy. These are people who were persecuted, who were laughed at, who were run over. These are the martyrs throughout history across, across time. And now they're standing up here and they're victorious. But they weren't victorious on earth. And it's often that way. Christians in the world will often look like failures. They often come off to the world as wimpy. And oh, you're, you know, you're, just, you're using that Christianity as a crutch or a goody two-shoes. 
And they come off not as victorious in any way. Back in 1998, I used this, this same example a couple of years ago in teaching through, but it's such a, an interesting one. Marilyn Manson, you've heard of Marilyn Manson, the, uh, the rock star, this is very sick and perverted. Marilyn Manson was performing the sold out shows in Cleveland and uh, doing things on stage that were so sick and perverted they're almost unspeakable of course with albums like Antichrist Superstar and Holy Wood which depicts Marilyn Manson on a cross these shows mix sexual perversion with symbols of Jesus on stage it's not surprising this guy is so twisted and he's also one guy you wouldn't want to be sitting near when God's wrath does reach its full but at these shows some Christian teenagers showed up to exercise their right of free speech to protest the concerts and these Christian kids were hauled off to jail while Marilyn Manson from stage hauled off insults and blasphemies of the living God people laughing at the Christian kids who were trying to stand up for their faith oh what a bunch of losers and so much that's the way it is in the world the Christian is maligned the Christian is Jesus said hey you're going to be persecuted for righteousness sake and the world's going to look at that and go losers failures wimps but not in heaven in heaven, these same martyrs, those who were destroyed, who were killed, who were taken out in the world, are now standing. These earthly castoffs are walking on water before the whole assembly in heaven. Victorious. How cool was it for Peter? The whole walking on water scene. He stepped out from the boat, he walked out toward Jesus, he saw the waves, he got scared, and he sunk. And we go, oh man, he sounds bummer. If he had just had enough faith. But the story doesn't end there. And Jesus grabs him, pulls him out of the water, and together the two of them walk across the water back to the boat. And we forget the fact that though Peter failed in his faith momentarily, when he had his eyes back on Jesus, he once again walked on water as if it was nothing. And these saints now are walking on water. They are standing on the sea of glass. The sea is heating up. You see God's anger beginning to burn. But you see the wonder, the victory of these who have succeeded in the world by simply trusting and believing in Jesus. And they are before the whole assembly in the throne room of God. I just think that's an awesome, awesome picture. Now God is preparing to make all things right. Verse 3 says, They sang... They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you. Now, who are they talking to? Who are they worshiping? Who are they praising here? Take a guess. Read the first line of their song. Great and marvelous are your works, who? Oh Lord God. Sometimes the real simple questions are the hardest to answer. <laughs> I know, I know you're waiting for me to get you on this. Who are they talking to? They're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, and they're saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O oh Lord God. Now hold that thought and think about this for a moment. The song of Moses is the first recorded song in the Bible. Back in, in the book of uh, Exodus, chapter 15. The Song of the Lamb is the last recorded song of the Bible. So you have here together these, these people, these, these victorious people are singing the Song of Moses, that first song, and the Song of the Lamb, the last song, but they're singing the songs together. They have now made it one song, Song of Moses, Song of the Lamb. What is the Song of Moses? 
Back in Exodus 15, it was right after the people were trapped between Pihahiroth and Migdal, on their way back to the Red Sea, or with their back to the Red Sea, and the people of Israel look out in terror, because they see the Egyptian armies coming. You remember the story? They've left Egypt, and, and after getting outside of Egypt, they find out that the army is chasing them down. So they head to the Red Sea, but they're against the Red Sea, they're in between Pihahiroth and Migdal, which were some mountains and caves, there was no way out. The only way back was looking into the face of the oncoming army and absolute defeat and slaughter, or drowning in the Red Sea. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and that's where God does His best work. That's where God really gets after it. When we're backed up to the sea and it seems we have no choices and nowhere to go. But we always have one choice. And it's the choice of the Israelites. It's the one they availed themselves of. We can cry out to the Lord. We can call out to Him. Lord, Lord, save. Lord, help us. That's what they did that day. Exodus 14 verse 10 tells us, As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Verse 13 of chapter 14 in the book of Exodus, Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And God did it. And it was totally unpredictable. And it was completely unprecedented. Nothing like it had ever happened. How could the children of Israel possibly know that God was going to do something like that? Dividing a sea? This was unheard of. But they cried out to the Lord anyway because he was the only hope that they had. And he saved them. And he did it over and over and has done it over and over for the people of Israel throughout history. He rescued them out of Egypt, 1500 B.C. He returned them from Babylon. Shouldn't have happened, 440 B.C. And in modern examples, you've heard these, that the tiny little country of Israel has survived several all-out wars from the neighboring nations. The War of Independence in, in the very beginning, 1948 and 49. The Sinai Campaign in 1956. The Six-Day War in 1967. The Yom Kippur War in 73. The First Muslim Intifada, which was 1987 to 1993. And the Second, or Al-Aqsa Intifada, in 2000. All of these were launched against Israel with the purpose of destroying and annihilating the Jews. And none of them have worked. And they should have. The Arab nations surrounding will complain, well, they were just better equipped than we were. Not so. They're, they had four to one odds in terms of man to man. There were four Arabs for every one Jew as these wars were playing themselves out. And again, the Arab nations will say, well, America's equipped Israel. They've got all the high-tech stuff. Again, not so. Russia and China and France and Germany have equipped, well-equipped, all of the Arab nations surrounding Israel should not be there today. We should not be planning a trip there next March. It shouldn't be happening. And yet it is because God is protecting his people. Well, what's the point of this whole Exodus story tonight? Listen, when they got to the other side of the Red Sea, Exodus 15, Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. 
They sang, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. And the song of Moses is the song of deliverance. So is the song of the Lamb. They're both victory songs. They're both, both songs of deliverance. The song of the Lamb is sung in Revelation 5. But here are some similarities, and you might want to consider these. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses happens at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb happens at the Fiery Sea, or the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses deals with the rescue of Israel. The song of the Lamb deals with the rapture of the church. The Song of Moses talked about Israel being brought out of Egypt. The Song of the Lamb talks about the church being brought out of the world and into heaven. The Song of Moses is a song of rescue. The Song of the Lamb is a song of rescue. The Song of Moses is a song of redemption. The song of the Lamb, song of redemption. And so these two songs, the beginning and the end of the Bible, they fit together perfectly as if they were two choruses with the same melody, just different words, but the same theme. It's perfect. They sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. But the song of Moses was a worship song to God. Also, the song of the Lamb is a worship song to God. So when we come back to that question, who are they singing to? Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who are they singing to? They're singing to God. They are singing to Jesus Christ. Now I mention this because the book of Revelation has no problem identifying the true nature of the character of Jesus. John in the book of Revelation has no qualms with explaining to us and showing us very clearly that Jesus is God, that God is Jesus, that they are one and the same. I had a conversation this morning that was interesting. It's kind of been an ongoing conversation with one of the guys who goes to the bridge here. He keeps coming up and we get about five minutes at a time trying to talk about figuring out the Trinity. He just is going, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. And I'm like, what, you, you expect me to explain it to you? <laughs> there are some things about God that are so mind-blowing that we're not going to get. We're just not going to understand. Now, to me, that brings a lot of peace to my heart because I don't want a God that I can completely figure out. Because once I've figured him out, how powerful is that? But as we talked about, and he kept saying, they're, they're, how can they be the same and yet be separate? You know, see Jesus on earth and he's praying to God and God's in heaven. How can they be the same? Well, I don't get that. And yet, my answer to him is what I want to tell you tonight. The re reason that I believe that Jesus is God is very simply this. The Bible says he is. I can't explain it to you. I don't understand. I can't get my arms completely around that concept. My pea brain has a trouble with that. If I sit there late at night and think too much about it, I lose all sleep, so I just don't. But what I do is I look at the scriptures, Titus 2.13, where Paul calls Jesus our God and our Savior. Peter, in his letters, refers to Jesus as our God and our Savior. You can look that up, see the first or second Peter, and it's right in the beginning as he's uh, greeting the people. John, in 1 John chapter 5, at the end of his chapter, at the end of his book, calls Jesus the true God and eternal life. Thomas, when he saw Jesus after the resurrection, what was the first thing out of his mouth? My God and my Savior. My Lord and my God. I'm sorry, is, is specifically what he said. He called Jesus God. No doubt about it. And Jesus, of course, said, I and the Father are one. The book of Revelation tells us in Revelation 1.1 that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
And in Revelation 22.13, Jesus speaks these words. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we saw this in several studies ago, that God said that in the book of Isaiah several times. Five or six times, God says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And now Jesus says, no, I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Which is it? It's both. Because Jesus is God. And God is Jesus. And the revelation is clear about that. You may not fully understand it, but I'll tell you what. I fully believe it because the scripture tells me so. And it is absolutely clear. So verse 4, they continue the song, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And all the nations, this is cool, watch this. All the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. The nations are going to come and worship before you. Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow at that time of judgment that we will see coming. At the end of the tribulation, you will see the souls of even those who died in absolute rebellion and rejection of Jesus Christ, those people will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Everybody will. Because we won't be able to help it. Now you and I, in Christ, will bow the knee in absolute wonder and awe, thrilled that we are before our Lord and Savior. And we will worship. But there will be thousands upon thousands, multiplied millions from across history, who will bow the knee to Jesus Christ in abject fear recognizing that he truly is all that he claimed to be. Zechariah 14, verse 16 tells us this, an interesting uh, prophetic side note. He says, then it will come about at that time, we're talking about during the millennial kingdom, it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. We're told that during the Millennial Kingdom, the Feast of Tabernacles will be reinstated as an annual festival in Jerusalem. And everybody living on planet Earth during that time will go up to Jerusalem to celebrate this. It's a very cool thing. Now, you may ask the question, will everybody have to come to the Feast of Booths? And maybe your job's a little busy that time of year, or, or maybe it's going to be hard to get some vacation time. Will you have to go? And the answer is no, you don't. You don't have to go to the Feast of Booths at all. However, you might want to think about it. Zechariah 14.17 says that it will be whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. There will be no rain on them. (laughs) So you don't have to go, but you're going to be in a season of drought if you don't. But there's an application here that's very interesting to me. The Lord's saying, if my people don't come up to worship, they're going to experience drought. And isn't that the way it is? If we don't worship, we dry up. We get thirsty. We go through seasons of drought. It's what happens when I'm not coming before the Lord. Thursday was a long day for me. In fact, this has been a long week. A lot of stuff going on. It's very exciting stuff, but good or bad, you know how even good stress is exhausting. So by about 6.25 on Thursday night, we had rehearsal at 6.30, and 6.25 I was home and I was just going, okay, get my guitar, where is it? And head out the door and I just kind of trudged down here and, and got in and got the guitar out and, and I think Heather walked in the door and made a comment about, are you okay? And, no, I'm not, I'm just really tired. Oh, okay. And, you know, I'm, so I'm really lifting everybody else's spirits at this time. And we all gathered around and we praised, we normally do, and then we started into rehearsal. 
which for a couple of you who are on the worship team, you know our rehearsal is worship. It's what we do. In fact, lately what we've been doing is we've just kind of been worshiping through the songs, and if we need to fix things, we go back afterward and do that. And I kid you not, two songs in, I was feeling better and better and better, and by the time we were done, I mean, it was better than a latte from Starbucks. I was doing great. <laughs> it was better than good caffeine. And, and that's what happens when you hit those, those crisis points, those seasons of drought. I'm telling you about this because, you know, a lot of times what we do in our human nature is when we've had a long day at work or an exhausting time, and especially we've got worship or Bible study that night, we go, oh, you know, I'm too tired to go. Let's just stay home tonight and just relax. And you know what we're doing? We're, we're depriving ourselves of what we need. We're, we're keeping ourselves from getting the very thirst-busting drink that we need, and it's the living water. And if we go, and I've heard this from you all, it's amazing. It doesn't matter how exhausted we are, but you get in here and you start to worship the Lord. And by the time you're done, it's like, well, I'm so glad I didn't miss. Because my heart needed this. And I keep, you know, it's just, it's just kind of the way things are. But as a pastor, and, I, and you, you see the differences, the Sunday morning group, a lot of people show, and then you've got the Sunday evening, you've got the Wednesday night group, and it's always less people. And I just want to say, I, I wish there was a way to do it without making people feel guilty. Help them understand what they're missing. Help them understand how much better it is. I mean, if I had the choice, forget Sunday morning, I'm coming Wednesday night and Sunday night. That's when I want to be here. Because it really get filled up then. Now, Sunday morning's great. And actually, I'd be depriving myself if I wasn't here then. And I'd be depriving you because, you know, it wouldn't be anyone... Someone else would do it, I guess. <laughs> Stacy could lead and, you know, pretty <laughs> joke of preach, we'll see. Anyway, <laughs> but back to it. When we don't come up to worship, we get thirsty. That's what happens. So God says, I'm not going to make you come up to the festival, but the result will be drought. So the Feast of Tabernacles, where everybody's going to come from all the nations, it's a voluntary annual event. My question is, who would want to miss the Feast of Booths? Why would you not want to go? I mean, how cool is that? Think about it. A party in Jerusalem every year and everybody from around the world gets to get together. I was watching the creation video this morning that they were showing all the bands and everything and, and Russ, you said it. It got to me. I'm like, I want to go. That just looks like fun. You know? I want to be at the Feast of Tabernacles. I wouldn't want to miss it. I just I want to be there. Micah chapter four verse one. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Why will they stream to it? Because the living water will stream out of it. And that's where we go to drink. Zechariah 14.8, in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will be in summer as well as in winter. And personally, it hit me just the other day. Cheryl and I were just sitting around the house and I, and I looked over to her and I said, You know what? We're going back to Israel next March. I forgot. I mean, I remembered and I'm so excited. And that's what it's going to be like. To stream from all the nations into the place of the living water to get back to the Lord. Now, at this point, verse 4 ends, and the last half, and see, it, the chapters and, and the, the verse headings, you know this, they're man-made. We, we put those in. People put those in over time to help Bible study uh, eat, be a little easier. This was written as one continuous narrative. It wasn't broken down into chapters. Verse 4 ends, and if I were making the chapters, and I know I'm not that important, but if I were, I probably would have had verse 4, the first four verses, still be part of chapter 14, and then start chapter 16 at verse 5. 
That for me should be chapter 16 verse 1. Why? Because now we have just finished that great parenthesis in the middle of the book. Now we're back on track. Now we get back into the flow. Let me show you this. A few more things and we're almost done. At this point, we get back into the chronology, the literal flow of Revelation. Why? Verse 5. After these things. After these things. Do you remember what after these things is? In the Greek. Menachalta, yes. It's the phrase you need to know. And finally now I get to tell you why you need to know that phrase so well in the book of Revelation. Before I get there, remember this. And just a quick review. The book of Revelation is unique in the Bible. Because, and for those of you who are kind of just joining us now, the book of Revelation is the only book that comes with its own, what, Russ? Divine outline. It's the only one. Revelation 119. Jesus tells to John, he gives him a three-part outline. He says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place after these things. After these things is metatauta in the Greek. Incredibly important phrase. So he says to John, write the things which you have seen. What is that? It's the vision of Christ in all his glory, chapter 1. John had seen that. Now he says, write the things which are. That would be in chapters 2 and 3, the church age. The church age. John was in the front end of the church age. It was going on all around him. It would continue after him. Write the things that are. And then Jesus said, and write the things which will take place after these things. Metatauta. After what things? After the church age. So in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we see the church in heaven. After these things. After the church age. Revelation 6 through 9, we read about and study the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Again, after the church is in heaven. Revelation 10 through 15, as we've talked about tonight, is that great parenthesis. Big picture signs and portents of the final judgments and actions of God. Then chapters 16 through 19, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, which come after the first half. Revelation 19, we'll see the glorious appearing of Jesus, which happens when? After the tribulation. Then Revelation 20, the millennial kingdom comes in. Satan is bound. And that happens after the glorious appearing of Jesus. And then Revelation 21 and 22, we'll read about the new heaven and the new, the new earth that come after the millennium. After these things. This important Greek phrase, metatauta. It's the phrase, and this is why you need to know it, it is the key phrase that keeps the book moving forward. Hayden's favorite ride at Disneyland, bar none, Splash Mountain, which was kind of a bummer for us because we had to ride it three times. Thankfully, the weather was warm. But Splash Mountain, has everybody seen, you know about Splash Mountain? It's that, it's that ride at Disneyland, it's like a log ride, big log flumes, and it's huge. And the final dip, the final hill that you'll go down is just, it's massive, and it's really fun. So we go on this ride with Hayden, but the way it works is as you ride along, the water's flowing, but it has these little, these little kind of gateways for it, and waterfalls and these gates that they kind of hold you, and then they let you go, and they keep you moving through the ride. That's metatauta. That phrase, after these things, are little gates throughout the book of Revelation. We're on the log ride going through Revelation, and it's what keeps us moving. And when we're not supposed to move, when we stop, we don't see the phrase anywhere. In fact, you haven't seen it. In, in chapters 10 through 15. Hasn't been there. Why? Because we're not moving forward right now. We're sitting right here talking about some things. And yet, we get to Revelation 15 verse 5, and there it is again after these things. Let me give you this broken down. Um, 
Yeah, Daphne, do you have a question? I just kind of, so you're saying 6 through 9 is the first part of the tribulation, and then you have this parenthetical branch. Right. And then now we're going back in chapter 16. 16 now is the last half. Yes. So when is this parenthetical? Parenthetical started in 10, ends in 15. And is that no, it, it, it describes as we're going through, it describes what's happening, some of which happened in the first half, like the two witnesses happened in the first half, but they're described all in one chapter. Um, chapter 12, and I talked about this a few minutes ago, chapter 12 talks about Israel and the whole plan. So what you see from 10 to 15 is you see these kind of snapshots that instead of trying to insert it all over the place, you get to the middle and John says, I need to give you these, these pictures here so that you can see. Yeah, yeah. Some of it happens in the first three and a half years. Some of it happens in the second three and a half years. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. Ooh, I like that. An exposition of the tribulation. Very good. Yeah, that's what it is. So we see this now. Metatopsy taking us through. Here's how it works. Watch this. Revelation 1:19. Again, Jesus said, "Write the things which will take place after these things." Immediately after the church age of chapters two and three, Revelation chapter four, verse one begins with that phrase. He goes right back to that same phrase. Metatauta. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of the trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. And he uses the phrase again, after these things. He jams that phrase, metatauta, twice into one verse. As if John's saying, okay, now it's the next step. Now we've just opened up a gate and the log is going forward. Here we go. We're going to ride some more. We ride all the way down into Revelation 9, verse 12. It says the first, row, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. So we're flowing along and then all of a sudden, boom, we hit a gate and we stop. Revelation 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 through verse 4. We're waiting, we're waiting. The water's building up behind us and I guarantee you it's building up behind us because when we hit chapter 16 next week, you need to have a seatbelt on. We are going to go flying over the next seven weeks. It is the most exciting, to me, the most exciting part of the whole study of Revelation is the last about seven or eight studies that we'll do. And it's awesome. And it's very, very fast-paced. And you're going to want to have your seatbelts on for that. But we had that long break. Didn't see that little phrase, metatauta. But all of a sudden, here we are again in Revelation 15, verse 5. He kicks it back off with, after these things, and kaboom, here we go. He says, after these things I looked and the temple of the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was opened. Now, in Revelation 18, verse 1, we're going to see the phrase again. After these things, which specifically refers to Armageddon. After that, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And we'll see what happens when we get to chapter 18. Chapter 19, then, begins the same way. After these things. The final destruction of Babylon. I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then finally, Revelation chapter 20 verse 3 will be the last time we see that phrase. After these things, which refers to the millennium, and it tells us something curious, and we're going to deal with it when we get to chapter 20. After the millennial kingdom, after the thousand year reign of perfect peace and prosperity under the Lord Jesus here on earth, after these things, Satan will be released again. And it's a very interesting study. Revelation 20. So here we are. After these things, verse 5, I looked in the temple of the tabernacle. The testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. 
They look somewhat like the priests of Israel. It's interesting. And then one of the four living creatures, that would be one of the cherubim whom we studied before, he gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls or vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Which temple? The temple in heaven. Listen gang, this is interesting here at the very end. The temple of the tabernacle of testimony is the Holy of Holies. On earth, that was a reference to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and ultimately in Solomon's temple. The holiest place where the Ark of the Covenant, which is also called the Testimony, was kept. The Holy of Holies. And we have here a graphic reminder of the unfailing covenant of God with Israel as we approach this last stage of judgment. But think about this. What does it take to open up the Holy of Holies? What did it take to open the Holy of Holies in the earthly temple? To make it accessible, not just to the high priest, but to all people. What had to happen? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Let me read this to you. Matthew 27, verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We know what he said, John 19.30, Teleo, fulfilled, complete, it's full. And behold, Matthew 27.51, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. By the way, a little side note, I heard something just, just this morning, an interesting comment. I've got to go back and study it. But the book of Colossians, chapter 1, tells us that Jesus, it's by his power that all things are held together. Interesting that at the death of Jesus, the earth shook and the rocks were split apart. That momentarily there, and it's been suggested by some, that momentarily the earth almost blew up when Jesus died. Because it's by his power that we're even held together at all. Interesting, the earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, I love this, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city, and they appeared to many, it's night of the living alive, you know, they're not dead, they're alive, hey, Uncle Frank, hey, Uncle Frank, you know, and he's walking down the street alive, the power of the resurrection gang, amazing, Well, it says the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And we understand in reading this that the destruction of sin is the key to opening the holy place that man might go in. It happened once before at Calvary and it's happening again right here as we are about to see the bowls poured out in Revelation 16. But what do you mean? Listen. God's about to do something big. It's coming down to the tail end of the tribulation. And the smoke which fills the heavenly temple, it, it indicates that God is doing something interesting, something huge, something powerful here. The smoke so fills this heavenly temple that no one can even enter it at this time. God's presence is so huge, it's called the Shekinah. The Shekinah glory of God, that great massive cloud of God's glory. The Shekinah glory is what filled the temple when Solomon first built it. Back in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, it tells us that it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. 
For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Isaiah saw something similar. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 4 says, The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So what's going on here at the end of chapter 15? Dad's home. He's home. And the world is busted. A sea of glass has flames of fire dancing across it. And while the people who are victorious in the name of Jesus are singing the song of Moses and the Lamb and praising, God is amping up His final and full wrath. As Bill Cosby says, the beatings will begin now. Are you tired of the world? Are you tired of what you see going on? The rapes and the murders and the tragedies and the terror. Listen. Chapter 15 begins and ends with the indication of the wrath of God. It is a preparatory eight-verse chapter that gets us ready for where we're going. And next week, the bowls begin to get poured out. And you'll see a wrath unlike anything we've seen in our study so far. Because God will finally say enough is enough. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us so much, again, that you are patient. I thank you that you're patient with me, Lord. I think so much about the times that you said to your apostles and you said to your disciples and people around you, how long must I put up with you? And it is with joy in my heart, Lord Jesus, that I thank you for putting up with us. I thank you for loving us in the way that you do. I thank you for going to the cross and opening up the Holy of Holies and tearing that temple veil and and, and opening it wide for us. I thank you we have opportunity to enter into that holy place because of your blood, Jesus Christ. And we see and we understand now, Lord, as the book tells us, that there is another time where the temple will be opened, now the temple in heaven. God, where your presence will be full in that temple, where your anger will burn. And final judgment will begin to take place. So, Father, I ask that you will motivate us like never before to speak the name of Jesus. I know I ask this a lot, Father, but you said, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. And so I am praying, Lord of the harvest, send us out. Give us voice. Give us heart. And get our focus off ourselves long enough to speak about Jesus to those who are really perishing in the way. Father, bless my brothers and sisters tonight. Thank you so much for giving us your word. In Jesus' name, amen.